0: Welcome to the weekly deep dive podcast on the add on education network, the podcast where we explore the weekly come follow me discussion and try to add a little insight in unique Perspective. I am your host, Jason Lloyd, here in the studio with my friend and this show's producer, Nate Piper. What's up? Hi, Nate. Hey, buddy. How you doing?
1: Man, I am so sore and tired. Um, it was my turn to go out of town for a few days, and I just got back earlier today. I appreciate you being patient and waiting for me so that I can rock the podcast with you. Though I'm just, I may be a little tired, but I'm, I'm gonna try to still bring my A game.
0: It's worth the wait. Okay, perfect. That's oh, all yeah. I care about.
1: Let's do this.
0: Let's do it. So here's here's the deal. We we kind of prefaced this lesson last week when we were talking about the, the building of the tabernacle. So we get to go into this tabernacle, which is kind of fun. We talked about it a little bit last week, so it's going to be Exodus 35 through 40. And then the entire book of, of Leviticus and and I know come follow me only has Leviticus 1, 16, and 19. And and I get it. Old Testament is a massive book, and trying to cover everything within a year and, and just trying to find out, you know, some sections maybe have more value than others, and what can we cut, what can we leave. But from from my perspective, it's fair game. If we're if we're jumping through those chapters or anywhere in the vicinity. I, I am going to sneak it in there and talk about it because it's Old Testament. I love Old Testament. We're just going to rope it in. Love it. Yeah. So, uh, as we start this episode, one thing I've heard a lot as we, we're talking about Old Testament, and it, it happened uh, here with this last week. It just seems like people say the Old Testament seems so harsh, and, and they have a fair point. You look at God wiping out. Uh, Noah with the flood. He saves Noah, obviously, and his family, but wipes out the rest of the world. And you have Pharaoh's children, uh, the firstborn and all the Egyptians being slain while the Israelites go free. You have last week with Moses and the golden calf when he has the Levites go and slay 3,000 men. And you're going to have it when they go into the land of Canaan to kill men, women, and children. It just seems like the God of the Old Testament is a very harsh strict God, if you mess up at all, God is going to slay you. Like when he's saying, don't pass this line. If anyone touches the stone on the other side, you're going to drop down dead, or I give you permission to stone them. If anyone's gathering sticks on the Sabbath day, stone them. And, and this is not like a happy hippie kind of stoning event, right? This is... <laughs>
1: Much to the chagrin of the children of Israel.
0: Much to the chagrin of the children of Israel, these stones were heavy. Let me
1: let me just ask then specifically, uh, uh, like a super specific question, right? Um, it, with just a little bit of maybe just perspective, I'm going to try to get through this real quick to throw this to you. So we, we just read this story about um, the golden calf and 3,000 people getting killed for their involvement with this. And uh, the specific question that, again, we've even talked about this, was, okay, with what you just got done explaining, like, yes, the the God of the Old Testament can seem brutal um, versus the God of the New Testament. You know, you've read some scriptures before where you're like, hey, is this from the Old Testament or New Testament? It's like, oh, that sounds like the New Testament. It's like, love your neighbor, right? Mm-hmm. You're, yeah. like, you're like, nope, that's actually the Old Testament. And then there's some stories where you're like, oh, this person came into the house and did something wrong, and so they died, and then their wife came in, died, and you're like, oh, that sounds very Old Testament. You're like, no, that's New Testament. The, I, I guess the point of that being, we don't need to get into that too much. The point of that being, you no, know, God was consistent through there. Just the stories in general of the Old Testament are are a little bit more kind of gritty and brutal, right? So I guess my question is, in, in reference to this story specifically, it feels like some of this has to be taken with... Um, uh, not necessarily viewed through our modern lenses, our modern day understanding. Again, we've talked about we live in the time of peace. We live relatively in the most peaceful time in the history of the earth, with the most information available. So we sometimes uh, it's hard for us not to sometimes see historical things. I mean, we can't we can't we can't look at things even a hundred years ago and and not help but judge it through our very modern day lens, right? Our very modern understanding and things like that which isn't always fair is what i'm going to say and and two we sometimes forget that death to us feels like the end like that that is for humankind in general a final thing and it and it can feel very very much truly the end of it all and so when we see when we see death around us even in this life and, and it's it's hard not to to feel like oh my goodness that's like the ultimate th- sadness that's like the ultimate injustice especially when it's happening to innocent people right I mean I know for me it's like again like you look at what's going on with you know Russia and Ukraine and in, in both these cases we go historically like what what's going on like we I thought we were past this one country is invading another country. You know, like Mm -hmm. that, that feels like something that happened way before I was born. And so it's hard for us to understand that historically, but at the same time, then we see the atrocities happening to innocent women and children, and we're going, how can, how can this death and destruction survive in the same universes as a God that loves his children, right? And constantly when you and I have talked about this you're always good about just being like but just remember at least this this isn't justifying anything but at least helping to understand for god death is not the end death is just physical death is a step along the process right and that and that um innocent people are going to be judged correctly in the next life right and that and that for us it's sometimes hard for us not to see death and go this is this is to evil things happening to to innocent people well yeah in our perspective that is what's happening that's not god saying i'm punishing innocent people and 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 like you've said on multiple occasions sometimes maybe we just don't understand and with the eternal perspective maybe we will a little bit better but that the idea is we've all been sentenced to death yeah we come to this life being sentenced to death, right? And so I, I at least just wanted to quickly kind of frame at least this discussion through through the perspective of let's at least be not looking at some of these stories in a in a finite vacuum, but with infinite, or, or at least in an attempt to have some infinite perspective.
0: Right, right, right. And if I were to say real quick, from our perspective of, of, of peace and how we live, if these stories don't trouble you and don't, totally, then 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 I become concerned because yeah. that means you're familiar with. I mean, you're you're living with that kind of familiarity with death. Uh, they they had to kill just to live every day. Something had to die. We don't, you know, we we're, we're removed from that. Everything's already killed. For we us. get our
1: we get our stakes from Ruth's Chris right?
0: It doesn't look like a cow anymore. It doesn't look it. like
1: a cow anymore. I don't even know where, what part of the cow is being cut from, but that's a good point, is even for our life to be sustained, something has to die, and so that's that's a true thing. Now, I want to talk specifically, because you have some fantastic insights, specifically on this story um, in Exodus about the golden calf and about the 3,000 people um, that the Levites go and chop down.
0: Yeah. Okay, so if we're talking about these 3,000 people that died— uh, let me first ask this question. you You've got six hundred thousand men in Israel and and Moses starts the question before he before he orders the death of anybody, he says, who's on the Lord's side? Step here. Would three thousand people have died if all of Israel would have crossed that line at that point? Mm. right? I, he gave them a chance. and you've got you've got here, We've got to remember, this is a nation that is a religious nation. In our time, again, taking our lens, we have the separation of church and state, and we try not to get those two mixed, but back then, the church was the state. And if you've got a religious state that is creating itself as a national identity and and they've established laws to to protect themselves, and then you have somebody commit treason to those laws, and you look at, so Moses, thou shalt have no other God before me, and we're going to worship this God, and this God is going to deliver us. And, And let me remind you, they're going to fight armies that God commanded them to skirt around. Because they were bigger, they were more powerful. God didn't want them to see and be intimidated lest they didn't go and engage them. And then when Moses sends 12 spies, 10 of the 12 spies come back and say, They're like giants and we are like grasshoppers in the land. We don't stand a chance. If God is not on their side, these people very literally will die physically as they go and engage in battle. So let me ask you this question In our day and age, if you're going to battle, and you have somebody within the government that goes and commits treason against the United States, what is the penalty?
1: It's capital punishment. It's death.
0: And why? Why do we—today, in a day of information, a day of peace, why do we execute somebody for treason? I mean, I think that it's
1: because you're basically jeopardizing the lives of
0: so many other people, potentially an entire nation, right? Right. And and you take that take that story, that instance, and apply it to these guys. And just look, right before this happened, as they fight the the who is it? The Oh man, I just went blank. We we could look that up in later. You you know who I'm talking about. Moses raises his arms up. Yes. And as his arms get tired and start to drop. The people start to lose. Literally, people are dying on the battlefield, and what's going to save them is divine intervention. If people refuse to worship God on God's terms and are introducing a new God or a new form of worship that will cut them off from divine intervention, they are sentencing a nation to death. Unless these people die, you will kill a nation
1: and and not even to mention the fact too that it's like it's also jeopardizing the um the the souls of this nation too right spiritually like, as well as physically you have this you have this small group of people that are basically um i think you, you were just like loud and you know what i mean and and their voices were strong enough that this this small section of people were convincing basically the entire nation to worship a false idol to do this, not the Lord's way. Right. And, and like you said, like comparing it to committing treason, that's quite literally exactly what they were doing. They were jeopardizing the children of Israel, the nation of Israel at this time, truly the entire nation to a, both a physical death and a spiritual death. And like a cancer, needed to be cut out.
0: Absolutely. And and this isn't the first, I'm glad you said the, the noise, right? Because yes, not everybody in the crowd, when you're talking about a mass of people, you can't say that every single person in that crowd is guilty to the same level. Right? You had some people that come and say, I'll stand on the Lord's side. You have some people that won't. You have a lot of people that'll just follow whatever. And all it takes is, even if it's a minority, a loud minority, to to push on pressure and and make things happen. And, the, and Moses is trying to hold accountable not all of Israel, well, all of Israel to some degree when he makes them drink the gold, but the ones that are most accountable are the ones that are, are, are going to be bearing the sin and, and dying to to save the rest. And then Moses is going to have that intercessory prayer, pleading with God to even put his own life on the line, hold me accountable for these people if you can't forgive them. Take my life so that these people can, can go free. It, it is interesting, but I do like that, that, that you mentioned this noise, going back real quick, Noise is mentioned to the reason why people fell in the beginning, the children of Seth, when they talk about the the riotous noise that they're making down in the valley below, and they're like, we've got to go stop this. Take that story. I, I believe we've talked about this, if, if you guys yeah. want to go back and listen to previous episodes, so you're not super lost. But as they're making this riotous noise, and they come down to go destroy it, and then they end up fornicating and losing their souls— um, There's parallels in this story because Moses is up in the mountain. Josh was with him, and he hears the noise. These guys are not just worshiping a calf. But they're doing it in a very riotous, inappropriate way to where the noise is coming up and Joshua thinks that the people have gone to war and they're getting slain and, and they have to come down off the mountain to find out what is going on. And God tells Moses, hey, they're, they're, you've got to go down because they're worshiping a false god. It's not just that they're worshiping a false god, but they're doing it in a very inappropriate way as well. And And this noise... Not only is it in that story with with the sons of Seth following down and losing their lives, you see it with Noah, the story of Upna team, and and some of these other stories we've mentioned in the past. They say that the flood came on account that the men were so noisy and disrupting God that God decided to destroy them and wipe them off the face of the earth because of the noise. There was no there was no rest. So it is kind of interesting that you that you mentioned noise. Cool. That's kind of what I hit on. No, that's
1: great. Again, just to kind of put a bow on it. Again, I think it was a fantastic explanation of this story, at least specifically, which is, which is yeah, we still treat trees in the same way. Like if your, if your treasonous acts in, jeopardize the lives of a bunch of innocent people around you, you, you have forfeited your, your life at that point, And it basically is exactly the same thing in this story back then.
0: Let me throw one more thing in there. Awesome. Approaching God can be for life or for death. We see that so often when God says, don't extend your hand and touch the rock or I will slay you, or "Or don't be gathering the sticks on the Sabbath, or, or uh, these things that have capital punishment. When, when he says, don't come into the Holy of Holies except for on the Day of Atonement, and it's the high priest, and if you do, or if you burst upon the presence of the Lord, you're going to die, this idea that the dross is going to be killed. If you're not worthy, if you're not purified, if you're not ready, the presence of God can be your death. But also the presence of God is your life because he is here. Approaching God can be for life or it can be for death. So it's an interesting dichotomy. God God gives life and he grants death and approaching him, it just depends on us. And and the spirit and the preparation, are we washing ourselves and preparing ourselves and approaching him on his terms, or are we substituting his terms for our terms and bringing him to us and trying to unrighteously seek him like the Tower of Babel? And we've talked enough about that. Let's get into Leviticus or, well, we're talking a lot about temple, um, I, I guess let's finish up Exodus and let's get into Leviticus. So in Exodus, you've got five or four chapters worth of the cubits, the length thereof, the breadth thereof. You love the cubits. I love the cubits. As, as much as you love the begatting, I love the cubits.
1: Can you just imagine if that was like uh, our, our selling point to people to listen to this podcast? If you wanted, If you want to go through the Old Testament and know all about who begat who begat who and cubits... This is the podcast for you.
0: Cubits, can you can you think of two less interesting things for most people? Cubits is terrible. I I, I say I like it, but it's kind of a, we're we're kind of being a little facetious, facetious. yeah. Because I mean, Genesis was so interesting with the giants and the this and oh, yeah. that and the and the stories and Exodus with the plagues and the whatever. And you're you're going to get into. The Canaanites and the fighting and the violence. And, and for whatever reason, it makes for a great read. And, and you're going to have Samson, right? Great stories. Oh, I can't wait for Samson. Wait. But when you when you get to the tabernacle and the length thereof and oh, the yeah. breadth thereof and, yeah, and this many tachets, it's a little bit tedious. It's it's like you hit sand and now all of a sudden your 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 wheels are stuck and you just you, you slog through it. Do you feel like this is where
1: most people lose steam when trying to make it through the Old Testament?
0: I do. I feel like most people start with Genesis. They're pretty enthusiastic. They're feeling good about life. They get halfway through Exodus, and they're like, yeah, I can do the Old Testament. This isn't bad. And then they hit the tabernacle... And they're like, I don't know if I can keep doing this. And if they're diligent enough to finish the first four chapters where God is outlining to Moses the specific instructions for the tabernacle, they're rewarded with the story of the golden calf and like, okay, I can do this. And then they're hit with four more chapters, which is a repeat of the four chapters they just read. So if you want to like close, close, just fast forward, skip these next four chapters, you know, the 30 five through 40, you've already read them. It's the same chapters, but I think it's important. Consider this. The reason why we have a Bible today is because scribes would take the scriptures and they would write them over by hand. And and copying in a manuscript, word for word, what the Bible was is a testament to how important they thought the, the word of God was. And if I were a scribe, Especially living now today in the the age of comfort, as we were talking a little earlier. When I went to, if I I were to go scribe the Bible, do you know how tempting it would be to to sum up chapters 35 through 40 as, and Moses built the tabernacle exactly as God had (laughs) commanded him to in the first four chapters we already outlined? There, I did it. I saved four chapters into one verse, and my my hand's not sore, and I didn't need to, to repeat all of that. Yes, there you go. And, and if I wanted to even take a bigger shortcut, I would take the first four chapters and sum it up as, hey, God commanded Moses to build a tabernacle. Verse two, Moses built, built the tabernacle. A tabernacle. <laughs> Done. Done. Two verses saved you eight chapters of reading of the Old Testament. So why is it the scribes felt it was so important to maintain every single verse and every single detail? And and I think it is the importance of, of obedience. And, and you look at... Israel gets a bad rap for being disobedient. You see the golden calf. You see him complaining. You see him doing everything that they're doing. But look at when it comes to the temple, how obedient they were. They had the right amount of tachets. They had the detail. They had the right materials. They had the cherubim sewn into the cloth. They did it with exactness. And they preserved that history with exactness. I think there's something to that. Did they just understand the importance
1: of the temple and, and the, the idea of that? Like, why, why is this something that they were totally okay with just being totally on, you know what I mean, like right on the money with?
0: And I think to answer that question, you almost have to pull two other scriptures in. When you look at Ezekiel and God commands Ezekiel, first he has this this vision, and he gets carried up into a high mountain. And, and if you're a prophet and God takes you into a high mountain, I would think at that point I would be fairly excited. Like, what is he going to show me? Like, all the people of all the world or other worlds that he's created out there? Am I going to meet aliens? I don't know. Maybe that's, that's just rad. me. yeah. Yeah, you're getting all excited, right? Yes. And God shows up with the measuring stick and says, hey, I've got something important for you to do. Measure the temple. And and you're like, really? Oh, Okay. And so here's the gate. It's this many cubits high. It's this many cubits wide. And here is the wall. It's this many cubits and that many cubits. And you go through and measure everything. You're like, wow. And it's four chapters long, just like you have in Exodus. Then you see it again in the book of Revelation. John on the island of Patmos. And and you know his revelations have been crazy. You've got these dragons with horns and eyes yeah. and the beast and the, and all sorts of crazy things. And, and an angel appears to him. And again says, hey, here's a reed. I need you to measure everything for me. I want you to measure this dimension. I want you to measure this. And then here is the critical key, I think, when he says, don't measure the court of the Gentiles, for it is going to be trampled under feet and destroyed. And so the separation being that which is measured is preserved. That which is not measured is destroyed. And this idea that they're building this temple, they're building it because this is preservation. This is life. We, we've gone through all of this death. We're living through all of these sacrifices. We are going to die, but in the temple is a sense of preservation, a sense of life that we can be sustained, that we can be alive and made alive. And, and I love that the building of the tabernacle is buried in these chapters that gives us the laws of God, because what God is doing is saying, here are the measurements that I need you to live up to. Mm. Know you not that you are a tabernacle of God? If you want to be a tabernacle of God, here are the measurements that you need to live up to, to fulfill so that you can be preserved.
1: Fantastic. Yeah that's some great insight. And and I I know that again it's easy to blow by some of this stuff too and and it's funny because it is kind of an arduous thing to just read these chapters, right?
0: Yeah, that and and even Leviticus and the the detailing all of the sacrifices and the details of all of these and the law But that's kind these, of a lesson
1: though too though, right?
0: Yeah. Right? Like even even
1: just Again, I know we kind of go back to this, and we will, by the way, so if you're bored of this already, I'm sorry, but we will continue to go back to this, which is, like, sacrifice is required. If the whole point of this chapter—not for the whole point. If a major point of this chapter for us should be we are being told to of how we need to measure up and with the exactness that we need to live by, I love that even just the process— of just making it through reading this is not the easiest thing to do in the entire world. Like even that, even that takes a little bit of commitment and sacrifice to go, I'm going to read through things that may feel incredibly boring. Right. But the, the point of that whole thing is, is like, this isn't easy and measuring up isn't easy and none of this stuff isn't easy. And, and if we're requiring obedience with, with precision, then part of, that, part of that is tied hand-in-hand hand to sacrifice, obedience and sacrifice, right? And it's like we've talked about. Yes, sometimes church is not the most entertaining thing. Mm-hmm. Sometimes some of those meetings can feel pretty tough to make it through, but that's part of the point, right, is that we're not going there to be entertained, we're going there to to hopefully be edified and uplifted, but with that even comes sacrifice.
0: Sacrificing our own time, like when Christ looks at the disciples and says, "Could you not stay awake with me for one hour?" It's heavy. It's that's, heavy. It's a, that's a, that's
1: a heavy thing, and and was and I'm glad that I'm glad that you have on multiple occasions been a good enough friend to chastise me when I get a little <laughs> complainy and pouty about <laughs> <laughs> about well, certain church meetings. That's a testimony meeting.
0: When I look at Leviticus combined with this chapter that we see about the tabernacle, combined with the chapters that we've read about the law and the tedious, as you've mentioned so much, this obedience and sacrifice going, I almost see this whole section of scriptures from a literary standpoint as almost going into a temple as you read it, right? Because as going into a temple is supposed to symbolize climbing that mountain, right? That work. Yes, Exactly. This is us going into Sinai as we read it. This is us going through all of this and and finding a way for us to 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 meet up. And I love that it does get a little bit gritty and it does get a little bit dirty because that is us. We are imperfect and yet that imperfection fits in this plan of of how to be saved as well. With that with that context, there's kind I mean it, it kind of sheds a little bit of light
1: on the idea that the court of the Gentiles you don't need to worry about measuring that because it doesn't matter right because that's what's going to be trampled under feet right yeah yeah I mean that's that's kind of a profound that's kind of a profound uh understanding of even that idea then too, which is like well yeah if if you're not committed to be being in the presence of god right if yeah if 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 you're if you're not Committed to doing the hard things and sacrificing, yeah. You like the 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 section of people that don't measure up. I mean, that doesn't it literally doesn't matter because they're not they're not in this for you know what I mean for like the long run, anyways.
0: Well, and and God refers to us as building material. He says it a couple times in the Old Testament. He'll say it in the Book of Revelation that one of the blessings for measuring up is that we will be as a pillar in the house of God, never more to go out. As a pillar is something that's set there forever, you will become a part of that. And, and you don't take a pillar that's two feet too short and put that in your temple to try to build with it, or two feet too long. Anything that does not measure up, it's scrap material, that, that goes into the bin, that gets recycled or used somewhere else or thrown away. But you take things that meet that measurement and it has utilization and you use it. And, and to build on that imagery when they're doing this it says it says here in the Exodus that they built an altar but then they take 12 stones and put it um, outside of the altar and the imagery that came to my mind think of this think of the the pantheon think of the Greek temples this idea of an altar in the temple and then these these pillars these six on each side this idea that you have columns. And and this is the same type of design that you see in in Greek temples, in Egyptian temples, these pillars that go along the outside with the altar on the inside that you can be, uh, that Israel are going to be the pillars, the building blocks as part of this temple uh, symbolism in in building this here. When we're going through the details of the tabernacle and the different, there's, there's different degrees of holiness. And the reason why there's different degrees of holiness is because of separation. Your Levites can come into the courtyard, they can do this and that, but they can't come into the holy place. That's the job of the priest. The priest can come into the holy place, but they can't go into the holy of holies. That's the that's the job of the high priest. And you've got your court of the the women, you have the court of the Israelites, you have the court of the Gentiles, and and the what makes them holy is this idea that it's, it, it's exclusive um, exclusivity, the idea that something is getting left out. Something is, something can't. Because you're leaving this behind, that's what makes this a little bit more holy. And as we go through our lives, obviously there's things that we want to leave behind to make us a little bit more holy, but also it's okay that we're not always behaving in the holiest of ways. I, th- I look at this separation and, and look at the temple as a whole, and if I try to compare myself to a temple, there, I think there are times and settings that listening to some music is good and appropriate, but if I were to take that same music, even if it were a sacrament hymn, and play it in the in the celestial room of the temple when everyone's trying to meditate... It'd it would be inappropriate. It, it's inappropriate. Whether, whether or not it's a good, wholesome song... What makes the celestial room celestial is the fact that it has separated some of that out. And it's not to say that it's bad. So when people say, well, you know, you have to be the same you that's going to be passing the sacrament. You have to be that in every aspect of your life. I think there are gradations of holiness. And there is a time and a place for certain activities, for certain things that we do. Obviously, we want to make sure that we are separating the, the, the garbage out of our lives and go back to Leviticus when they offer the head on the altar and the legs and the innards and everything else. When you burn something on an altar, most of what you're doing is is converting it into gas. If you take the weight of of something that you burn and you were to capture all the gas and then the ash left behind, that the law of conservation of matter states that it will weigh the same as what it did before you burned it but the weight of the ash is so small compared to what you started with because most of the weight has, has converted into to the, the CO2 or the gas or whatever's going up in the air, the smoke, right? Go back to that. When we offer ourselves up to the Lord and as we burn ourselves, if you will, on the altar— A lot of us is getting purified, is going up, and what gets left behind hopefully is the dross and the things that we're willing to cut out as we purify our lives, that symbolism of separating and creating a more holiness to us. But even within that, there there are... It's not to say that we all have to be staunch and wear stiff collared shirts with pins poking into our necks to keep us on our best behavior 24-7. Even within the temple itself, there's different degrees of holiness. Is that making sense or am I just blurring everything?
1: No, I think this is great.
0: Okay, Leviticus, we've talked about what Leviticus means uh, before. Levi means to divide. And I love that... All of Leviticus is about how to become holy. Like if you're unholy, this is what you need to do. If you've committed these sins, this is what you need to do to make yourself holy. And you think divide, well, doesn't that divide me or separate me from God? But we make ourselves holy by dividing out from us those parts that we don't like. And, and we're going to see some of that, this idea that we can cut off those parts of us and, and sacrifice that or get rid of that so that we can approach God. So let's just go into Leviticus 1. And I, and I know Leviticus is another one of these hard reads, um, but let's tr- let's try to put a little bit of life into some of this. So verse 7, And the sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire upon the altar. So I'm going to pause right there. Fire. We've seen fire a few times already. One, what guided Israel from, from Egypt was this pillar of fire. What appeared to Moses was a burning bush, this fire. So this fire symbolizes the presence of God. So the altar is where there's sacrifice. What's on the altar? Fire, God. God is the sacrifice. He is the one that gave himself up so that we can be sanctified. But this is also going to be a portal because as you burn things on the altar, it says, I mean, if you want to have a fun little game, count how many times in the book of Leviticus it says a sweet savor unto the Lord. This idea that as you burn it, the smoke rises and it goes up to God that through through this fire, it can ascend to God. So this is going to be representing God. And it says, lay the wood in order upon the fire. And so God, my, my house is a house of order. And there is a, a specific order to how things need to be done. Uh, verse eight. And the priest Aaron's sons shall lay lay the parts, the head and the fat, in order upon the wood that is on the fire, which is upon the altar. So now you have the head and you have the fat, which is in order on the wood, on the fire, on the altar. But the inward parts and the legs shall be washed in water, and the priest shall burn all on the altar to be burnt Sacrifice and offering unto the um, made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord. So, if you're going to burn everything on the altar, why why do they take the time to mention the head and the fat and and everything else? Why not just say everything gets burned on the altar? And so, we look at this. There's, I think, a reason why we're talking about these parts: the head would represent the thoughts. If we're offering something to the Lord, we're going to offer up our thoughts unto the Lord. And and the fat, the fat represents the health. The 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 an animal's healthy if it's got some fat on it, it's doing well. So, offering our thoughts, offering um the health, the our our strength of the of the of the being in order upon the wood, and then the inwards of the legs shall um and his legs shall wash in water. So the inwards spiritually, and, and we're going to wash the inwards so that it becomes pure, and we're purifying ourselves on the inside, and then washing and, and offering that spiritually onto the altar. Everything gets offered to the Lord, but we're going to be offering our thoughts, we're going to be offering our spirit, and we're going to be offering our, our ourselves, our, our who we are to the Lord on the altar as a sweet savor to him. And this is going to be an, a, a symbol of ourselves. We do this because it should have been us that died, and, and this is going to take our place and be offered to the Lord. Awesome. All right. Moving forward. All sorts of sacrifices. And, and building on that, let's skip forward a little bit. Leviticus chapter 8. Um, and going back to these priests again, verse 23, and he slew it, and Moses took of the blood of it and put it upon the tip of Aaron's right ear and upon the thumb of his right hand and upon the great toe of his right foot. Have you read that and just wondered why are they dipping their their ears and their thumbs and their toes in blood? Like, what's the meaning? What's the purpose?
1: Yeah, I, I think that there's some good... I mean, even, even for those of us that might not be as... Um... Well, um, educated as you are on these things, you know. I don't know. I, I think that I think that we probably know that there's something important there, and could probably make some assumptions. But, but you probably should just tell us what the official things are.
0: <laughs> I don't know if they're official. I, well, let's let's get your let's get your let's thoughts stabby on it. Stab at let's it. Let's get
1: your thoughts on it, and I might have some thoughts to jump in with too.
0: So. Oh, fantastic! I I just look at it as the ear first. You got to hear the word of the Lord. Yeah. And then as you're going to the thumb, the symbolic of the hand there is your ability to make, to do, right? To do, huh So before you can do the word of the Lord, you have to hear the word of the Lord. But if it stops there, it's of no value to you until you start doing it. And when you do the word of the Lord, then you enable yourself to be able to walk in the path that the Lord has lined I out. I can't believe it. I was right. Look at you, Nate. i, w- I I'm so happy.
1: Dang it, I should have gone first. Maybe I can edit this podcast real quick. Hold on. Let me just think. Let me think if I can jump back here and actually punch me in. Go back in time. Going back in time and actually because I did know the answer. But I, whatever. I'm not I won't cheat our listeners by deceiving them like this. <laughs> I will say though, I will say though that is that is generally my my only um walk with the Lord was was also though um to stay on the uh, to stay on the path to ba- you know what I mean to to basically continue so that it wasn't just a one time thing so it was hearing doing and then maintaining kind of the idea of yeah yeah of 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 uh.
0: Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But then so enduring, hear to the it, end, yeah. enduring
1: to the end was kind of my, my on the foot.
0: But. And then faith is the principle of action. Because of faith, then we can act. And as we act, then we walk in the way of the Lord. And it, I mean, that's the key. And you're going to see it when we get into poetry later and we talk about Psalms, it'll, it'll do the opposite when it talks about a man who walks one way and then stands another way. And then lies. I mean, it's it's a digression rather than progression, and, and so it's it's kind of cool how they, they they use this. But we'll we'll get to that a little later. All right, let's talk about these uh, scapegoats, shall we? One one or two? Can't wait. Fantastic. So you got two goats, and this is actually where the term scapegoat even comes from, if I if I understand that correct. You've got one goat that is going to be sacrificed for the sins of the people, and their, their blood offering there, while the other goat gets to go free. And interesting enough, the one that gets to go free is the one called the scapegoat. Yeah, sounds sounds pretty good to be a scapegoat, if you ask me. In this context, it does. And, Maybe we're misusing the term nowadays. I uh, Yeah, well, so it's not just all roses and flowers for the scapegoat. Okay, let's find out what's going on. Because they lay their hands on the scapegoat's head, and they transfer all of their sins and iniquities on the scapegoat. Luckily, it's just an animal, and it doesn't care. <laughs>
1: good po- the good point. The animal probably is just stoked that it's the one that's not getting murdered.
0: And, and then I love how they say, and you need a fit man to carry that goat out, outside of the city. Because goats are violent,
1: and we don't like them, and they're they're violent and strong.
0: We don't want to make this uh, any more awkward than it has to be. All right, great. It's fit man, take this goat outside the out city here. limits and,
1: and send him away. Okay, so give us what is what's why are we doing this with two goats? Because honestly, this all feels like it could be done with one goat. You put the sins on it, you sacrifice it, and it still means the same thing.
0: That's a great question. I, I I don't entirely understand the fullness here of this uh this this scapegoating, but I I do look at it and in my mind at least it it brings a couple images. If you look at one, you, you know having two offerings at the beginning, and which which one are you going to choose? And one of them. Is, is coming to offer itself as a sacrifice so that we can be cleansed. Where the other one, it, we're laying our hands on, and really it's getting cast out. I, I look at this as Christ who's coming here to offer his life for us, and the other one being cast out, being cast down as, as the, the, the scapegoat, the Satan goat. So is, is Satan a scapegoat? Okay. And maybe another image you can look at it, and I, this is open for interpretation. If you guys have a, an interpretation you'd like to send in, I'd love to see it. No, you're doing great. Let's keep going. Maybe we get to go free because Christ was able to give his life. Maybe we are the scapegoat that got sent out and and able to, to live outside because Christ was willing to give his life. Although that doesn't quite resonate because it's cast out, really. It's not allowed back into to the presence, but maybe that's... but we
1: are, though. Adam and Eve were cast
0: out. They were cast out of the Garden of Eden, and we're cast out of... The presence of God. The presence of God as we come here on earth, and we bear our own sins. So even though we have a goat that died to give its life, it's not to say we're entirely unaccountable for what we do. Well, it makes sense that it would be a symbolism of
1: after this life, too, right? Like, if we don't repent, if we don't... you know what I mean, take advantage of the atonement, then we do carry our own sins and we will be cast out after this life too.
0: Yeah. See, the goat's great, dude. The goat's great. And and I mean, ultimately, it's not just the goats, because really what you're doing is you're offering them in order to redeem the people. And and the people are redeemed because, because one... And, and I see the similar imagery... Of Christ and the two sinners on either side of Him as a cross, as one sinner gets lifted up into paradise to be with Him that day, while the other one is is mocking Christ and and doesn't get lifted up, but rather probably cast cast down or cast away in in the afterlife, and and the idea that Christ stands at the middle of that, and, and maybe that is cool. judgment. Okay, maybe Great. we're the goats. Maybe maybe one of us goes up and one of us goes down. Sheep go to heaven, man. All right, let's keep going. All right, chapter 19, Leviticus. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto all the congregation of the children of Israel, and say unto them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So he's commanding them to be holy like he is. Now get this, you shall fear every man who? Who would you think? Not being able to read this. I'm commanding you to be holy even as I am, and you shall fear. Fill in the blank, Nate. Uh, Be. Me, okay? And I'm, I'm going to go with what you said and go on to the next thing. Um, and keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Turn ye not unto idols, nor make to yourselves molten gods. I am the Lord your God. So that makes sense, right? That reads right. Yes. Unfortunately, that's not what it says. Oh. I'm going to go back now. Okay. For ye shall fear every man his mother. That actually makes sense too. And his father. Yeah, that makes sense. So he's put mother and father in context of I am your God. And when he says God, remember the Hebrew word is Elohim, which is God's Gods. plural. Interesting. And you shall fear me or your mother and father. So going back to the insight you had on the the Ten Ten Commandments, Commandments,
1: baby, let's do it. Honor your we father and your mother. I, like this.
0: I, I just look at this as one more reference in the Old Testament to, to heavenly parents. I find it pretty cool. It's not like it's super obvious, but where it's there, it's there. And when you see it, it's hard, it's hard to unsee it. Yep. So I love that you pointed that out to me when we went over the Ten Commandments. This is great.
1: That's, that's awesome. That's a, that's a cool little nugget in there. I like that.
0: Yeah, that was... Keep
1: that in the back pocket. I liked it a lot, too. You were right. You told me you were like, you're going to love this, and you were right. <laughs> I do love this.
0: All right. We're almost, we're, we're probably out of time, but we're almost We've done. we got too. a few minutes. What, if, if we got something else great to go over, let's do it. Um, I think I want to do, just talk about some of the things here when they're talking about reaping your land. So, verse 9 And when you reap the harvest of your land, thou shalt not wholly reap the corners of thy field, neither shall you gather the gleanings of thy harvest, and thou shalt not glean thy vineyard neither shall thou gather every grape of thy vineyard. Thou shalt leave them for the poor and stranger. I am the Lord your God. And this This, this is a important. common
1: theme. This is a common theme so far in the Old Testament.
0: Yeah, for as much as the Old Testament God can be harsh, he is very much concerned about the poor. He's very much concerned about the stranger. And he says, don't, don't, don't be so greedy to get every last little bit out of your field that some other poor soul is going to starve to death, leave some behind. And this is going to become important. And this this is my segue into the last thing I want to talk about this chapter. There's some of these chapters I know are kind of tedious and hard to read, but they provide so much context to understanding some of the other stories that without reading this or understanding it, you miss some of the value there. Uh, look at Ruth and Boaz what is Ruth doing? She is following the harvesters to, to pick what they're leaving behind because that's her right as a poor person. She's, her husband is dead, so she doesn't have the support of a husband. She doesn't have, as a, of a female in ancient Israel, you leaned on your husband for support or your father for support, and that's why the firstborn, when the father dies, gives a double portion The father gives a double portion to the firstborn so he can take care of any unwed sisters. So where she was once married and her husband's dead, she she becomes one of these poor people and she is going into these fields to pick up what's left behind because that becomes her lot. So it, it provides some context. And I love how some of these stories, like when they're talking about in the law, if you borrow something from somebody and you break it and you have to replace it back sevenfold. And you go to the story of the guy who was out chopping wood in the forest and the axe handle comes flying off into the lake and sinks to the bottom. That, that's, that's not as big a deal you think, well, oh, why doesn't he just take another axe handle or an axe head and put it on the handle and, and call it good? But because it was borrowed and he says that to the prophet, I, I am in trouble. This was borrowed. He has to replace this sevenfold, and he didn't even have enough to buy one to begin with, right? So that, that helps us understand the context of the situation that he's in. And perhaps the greatest context, I'm going to take from, from some of these purification rites in Leviticus, and I'm also going to borrow from Numbers chapter 19, because that's not part of next week's lesson, even though it technically should be. And in the scriptures it says, uh, let, me just, let me just skip into... Uh, Numbers 19, real quick, because I want to make sure I'm giving you the right. It's telling you that you are unclean if you touch a dead body. And not only are you unclean if you touch a dead body, but you're unclean if you're even in the same room as a dead body. So let's look at verse 14. This is the law where a man dieth in a tent. All that come into the tent and all that is in the tent shall be unclean seven days. And every open vessel which hath no covering bound upon it is unclean. And whosoever touches one that is slain with a sword in the open fields or a dead body or a bone or a man of a grave shall be unclean seven days. And, and that might not seem that fascinating to us, but let me show you how this applies to understanding the New Testament real quick. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, you have a priest and a Levite going past this man if they pick up this man and take him and he dies on route they become unclean and their job they're they're headed to the temple to serve in the temple they will be disqualified from service in the temple for the next 7 days so they're looking at it and saying my responsibility to the house of god is more important than my responsibility to this man who I don't know, to this stranger. The Old Testament telling us over and over again how we should care for the stranger, but for them, they're saying, no, my responsibility to God is more important. Now, look at how Christ handles this situation because he is put in the exact same situation as the Levite or the priest. Think of him When he washes the feet of the disciples, and Peter says, no, let me wash your feet, and and Christ is like, no, I've come to serve. And think of again when he says the greatest in the kingdom is the one that serves, the the humblest, the one that's like a child. When he goes back to see Lazarus, who is dead, the man who came to serve everyone else orders other people to take the stone and roll it back. Why isn't he touching that stone? And and even though earlier in his ministry he goes into the same room where a dead girl is, instead of going into Lazarus and performing the work and serving Lazarus, he cries with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Why is he making Lazarus do the work? If here is the one that's serving everyone, who washes their feet— Lazarus, come forth. And when he comes, remember, this is a man in the verse verse that every kid knows because it's the shortest verse in the Bible, and Jesus wept, applies to Lazarus' death. When he comes out, he doesn't hug him. He doesn't hold him. He commands others to unwrap Lazarus. If we didn't understand this Old Testament law and the purification rites that we see in Leviticus and Numbers— then we would miss the whole purpose of this. That here is Christ, and this is this is different from earlier on in his ministry when he raises a girl from the dead. Because right now he is headed into the atonement. He is headed into Jerusalem, and he is maintaining ritual purity to perform in the greatest temple on Mount Olives this atoning sacrifice for real, a bowl or a, 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 a well, a bowl without blemish. He maintains this purity. And so in the story, just, just to kind of circle back
1: to the um, Good Samaritan, the idea is these priests are finding this um, this man beaten up on the side of the road, not dead. And there it's almost like these priests can use the excuse of, well, he might die while I'm trying to help him. And and in that case, then I wouldn't be able to like do my godly duty. So I can't help him because there's a chance that he might die. And more than anything, it's maybe even a lesson that we can learn understanding this context too, is they were were almost using their excuse of, which by the way, the Pharisees were known for, right? Is that you almost are using the excuse of, well, I have my... I have my religious duties that I have to keep above all and not necessarily the most important thing, which is all of that is to serve other people, though. Like if somebody's laying there and in need of your service, you don't get to to cop out with, well, there's a chance that I might not be able to do my religious stuff, so I can't really help this person in need because he wasn't dead. It was the idea that he might die, right? Because, again, th- that's the difference between Jesus still performing the miracle with Lazarus, but not—you know what I mean? But not—because you could say, well, then how does that apply to Jesus not then going over and, like, physically helping him? It's like, no, 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 no. Jesus, one, did still help him. <laughs> he still raised him from the dead, number one. And two, Lazarus was dead.
0: And and the the, the dude on the side of the road wasn't. Yeah, he needed help. And and I love that Christ, if he can't perform it himself, he doesn't use that as an excuse and walk away, but he finds a way to get others involved and use them to get the work done. It's a great left lesson and obviously metaphor there. Yeah, I, I mean, we are the hands of Jesus, right? And, and he can't bind up every single wound and help every single person on the planet, so what does he do? He pulls us in and involves us to do things that he can't do himself. For, for whatever reason, if he is going to maintain his, 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 his degree of holiness, his separation, and yet he's going to employ us to do his work so that we can help others enter the presence of God. And, and obviously lessons on delegation too. We can't just step in and save the day and do everything ourselves. Sometimes it's a lot better to get others involved and, and help out. And there's a time and a place. But one thing Christ didn't do was just walk away from somebody who needed his help. He found a way to, to still help the man yet maintain that ritual purity and do his temple duty as well. Amazing. And and we wouldn't understand, we would miss the value of those stories if it wasn't for these boring chapters in the old testament that that give us that rich context, that background, that that setting to be able to better understand it. Amazing. Let me just let me just
1: throw one thing in there, and we may or may not even keep this. I might edit it out if it's if it's too much of a curveball.
0: Throw away. I've got my mitt
1: with all of the maintaining ritualistic purity and and not um touching somebody like a corpse or a dead person right it kind of even puts a different perspective on taking the sacrament each week right like the lord is represented as the body underneath the shroud right underneath the underneath the sacrament sheet right mm-hmm. his blood and his body and so, in that case, he does use he does you know I guess use use um, us as his hands to be handling that sacrifice, right or the, or the or the body and blood of the sacrificed. But it is interesting because Christ also fills, or 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 we we, we metaphorically fill the place of Christ in in every aspect of the sacrament the preparer the person on the altar and then the person passing you know what i mean the person the person delivering salvation you know, or the atonement to to the people in the congregation. Um, is this way too far off? Is this way? I is love this, where you're headed because I want to. I mean? want to build on this. All right, because I'm just wondering. It's like it's funny because when you when you explained specifically the handling the corpse and the burial shroud, I'm just like, oh man. The first image that came to my mind was the sacrament. and I'm like, am, am I going? Am I going down the wrong path with this, or or is this going somewhere?
0: The ironic thing about it is, if that corpse is in the room the The priests that are handling it are unclean. Well, aren't we all too? And we are all in the same room with that. We all become unclean. and yet we become the cleanest by participating in this unclean. so and and, and then think again of Pilate, who washes his hands and yet in the act of washing his hands, he is becoming as dirty as possible. And, and this this role reversal of uncleanliness, cleanliness, because Christ is maintaining ritual purity all the way up to the atonement, but when they scourge him, when he goes in and bleeds from every pore, he has an issue of blood, which again is going to make him unclean. So he according was clean. According to Jewish law, right? According to, Yes, yes, Practice. yes. This is and, and to be clear, Jewish law is, is very much a, a health code, right? This is not to say that you're spiritually... Unclean, You're spiritually cast off forever. And it's only for a period of time. Yes, and you have to go and you wash yourself or whatever. But he's maintaining ritual purity because you had to be pure to perform this temple ordinance. But in performing this ordinance, he becomes unclean. And that's what the whole purpose of... The sacrifices were what, right? The animal bears your sin. The animal becomes unclean. The thing on the altar. It becomes significant that he bleeds from every pore because you go back to Leviticus. If you have an issue of blood, you are unclean. He was clean up until the point where he took our sins upon us, at which point he became extremely unclean that we might become clean. And you see that full cycle as he comes into a corpse in the room in the sacrament setting. It is ritually making everyone in there unclean, but as we participate, it cleanses us. It goes full circle from clean, unclean, to clean. He became unclean so that we can become ritually,
1: clean. Ritualistically unclean.
0: Yes. Yeah, which that's incredible. Which, which symbolically represents a, a, a purity.
1: Some cool imagery. See, the Old Testament's rad. I it is. I didn't know how great the Old Testament was until uh until even before the Old Testament you and I started kinda of getting into some of the stuff and I'm like, oh man, I love I love I love the added perspective so many of these things because the thing is I and I and, and I would I guess I would just wanna finish my thoughts with hopefully hopefully as we do kind of go down and try to add as much kind of insight and additional perspective to some of these things. Hopefully it's with the purpose of, of really locking in and, and enhancing even, even something as simple as the sacrament, right? Like, like hopefully this is things that while, while we're participating in these ordinances, it helps, it helps make them richer, deeper, and a more fulfilling experience, understanding, even more perspective and, and a bigger um, a bigger picture, I guess you know on on top of this stuff. I know it does for me at least. So I guess that's I guess I would say right that that's kind of our goal with some of these things with the Old Testament.
0: Absolutely, and, and like I said at the beginning of the year, Old Testament has more references to atonement than any other book of Scripture. It's it is prevalent and so much of this ties back to Christ and helps us understand that what are we talking about next week next week we're going into numbers and again one one I'm lesson not good at math. to cover an <laughs> entire <laughs> da, da, book da,
1: da, da. what oh <laughs> well, sorry i was just laughing at my own joke not <laughs> laughing <laughs> one lesson to cover the entire book of numbers wow okay well we've got our work cut out for us
0: yeah i'm sorry i apologize to you guys at home because I know there's so much stuff in the scriptures, and we're trying to pull stuff in, and we're trying to do it, but we're also trying to keep this without being like hours long. So we'll we'll do our best. Uh, sh- send us some questions. Send us, send questions. us some emails. It'll help we'll... us
1: know if if there is anything in particular that we are missing that you would like us to talk about. We we always appreciate.
0: Yeah, we we'll feel free to stuff. discuss it with you.
1: Killer. Until next week. See
0: ya.